So uh, this weekend I saw on the late Tim Keller's Facebook page a quote that I thought would be worth sharing today. His son is doing the posting on, on the page, but these are quotes from Keller. It says, People think a Christian is one who follows Christ's teaching and example. But Jesus is not primarily a teacher. He's a rescuer. I think that's really fitting in capturing what we're talking about in considering the wonder of redemption today. It's not that we should not follow the teachings of Christ. It's not that the teachings of Christ aren't valuable or that he didn't teach. But that wasn't the point. That's not why he came. He came to save us, to redeem us. This truth is captured in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 1, which we'll read together. So our memory verse uh, for this week is in verse 21, but I would invite you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 to 25. A familiar passage. And because the reality in our, in our lives is that physical changes have internal impact, and what the, the posture that we carry physically actually changes our thinking, changes how we connect and relate to various things. I'm going to invite you to do, as we have been doing uh, recently pretty steadily, I'm going to ask you to stand, if you're able, for God's Word. There's something about this standing that's not magical, and it doesn't uh, in any way, it's not some legalistic requirement, but what it does is in us, as we stand, the discomfort, the, the, the choice to change our posture so we're not just relaxing and lounging in the seat, is reminding us and setting this apart that this is God's Word. This isn't just man's Word. It's not my preaching. It's not the sermon. This is God's Word given to us. Without further ado, verse 18, this is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he had no union with her until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. Father, as we read your word together and as we endeavor to study it today, may our study be an act of worship. Lord, we ask that you, would, that you would enter into us, that you would cast out our sin and enter in and be born in us today. That as we encounter your word, that through the renewing of your mind, your Holy Spirit might transform us from within. That we might surrender to you. To make our lives living sacrifices in view of your mercy. That we might be doers of your word and not hearers only. We pray this in the precious name of your Son, Jesus, whose birth we celebrate at this time. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> it's become something of a tradition for us now to, um, to have O Holy Night sung 
during our Christmas Eve service. Otherwise, we might use it this morning, but we're using it tonight, so come back and be a part of that. And it's one to me, it's one of the most stirring songs, and it's one of the most stirring moments of our Advent celebration as we go through the season. There's the beautiful, somewhat haunting melody. I love it when my wife sings it. She makes me kind of happy. But the words of the song can grab us. Long lay the world in sin and error, pining. You feel it, don't you? The world is dark and hopeless. We want hope, but hope can be awfully hard to come by. Very often in the absence of hope, we'll, we'll try to fill that gap, fill that void with any number of things to keep us from noticing just how dark and hopeless the world can be. We recognize by every measure that, that sociologists and psychologists have that anxiety, depression, are the true pandemic of our age. Forget about COVID, forget about viruses. That, that fear, that despair, that hopelessness that we have is so widespread in our society. It's pervasive. Well, no wonder we try to cover it with commercialism, with substances, with relationships, with the party life, with throwing ourselves into our work. We try to get away from that hopelessness, the senselessness, the injustice. There's a lot wrong with our world. Sometimes it can cause a person to identify with the bumper sticker I saw some time ago. The more I know, the more I get to know people, the better I like my truck. Or another popular one a few decades ago, stop the world, I want to get off. Birth pains, groaning, long-expected Jesus. God's promised Messiah was the hope in a dark world. Darkness is a void only light can fill. You can fill it with stuff, and it's just stuff in the dark. It requires light to fill that dark void. As we've been walking through this Advent series, considering the wonders of God's love for us, we saw in our first week that as we considered the wonder of creation, that God created all things, that He might be glorified by His overflowing love. In week two, we considered the, uh, the wonder of revelation, noticing that God makes Himself known to display His glory in relationship to us. The third week, we considered the incarnation. God displayed His glorious love for His people by becoming one of us. God enfleshed, incarnate. He didn't lose or set aside or empty himself of his deity, but he added to himself the limitations of mortal man. Today, as we read the angel's conversation with Matthew, and as we consider the wonder of redemption, our core reality is this. The fullness of God's love and justice are displayed in Christ, born to save us from our sins. One more time, it's for, printed for you and it's up, on the, it's up on the screen. The fullness of God's love and justice are displayed in Christ, born to save us from our sins. So as we walk through this today, we're... Obviously, this is Christmas Eve. We've got big celebrations. You've got family in town. I, it's good to see faces of people I don't get to see every week. Back around. Welcome home. And you're going to do a lot of fun things. Don't allow the fun to overtake the wonder. It's not enough for us to have good Christmas celebrations with family. Because they'll go home. In all likelihood, some of our loved ones 
won't be here next year. Maybe they won't be physically present with us. Maybe they will have passed from this mortal life. We don't have anything to do with that. And we need to recognize that all of the things that please us now have a limit. And in the end, apart from the thing that fulfills the deepest parts of us, all the rest of this will leave us still longing, still dark, still wondering where is God in the midst of all the mess that we've got in this world. Brings us to our first point. Sin has left us darkened, disordered, and despairing. Sin has left us darkened, disordered, and despairing. This is why Christ had to come. Everything we talk about today, as as Wayne mentioned earlier when he was up here to pray, the whole reason for Christmas is redemption. The story of Christmas is the story of redemption. God delivering, rescuing, ransoming, saving His people. Why? Why is that necessary? Our rebellion has left us dark and hopeless. We recognize that. You don't need a theology degree to to be able to understand that. You You don't have to even have opened your Bible to look around you and recognize that it can be a dark place. You've got 24-hour cable news networks entirely devoted to reminding you of that. You've got social media outlets constantly telling you what you don't have or crying out about the injustices of the world. It's not hard to see that things are broken. Sin has left us dark and disordered and despairing. We cry for justice, but our sin is the reason we lack it. It's also the reason we desperately long for it. We were made for more. The God who created us out of the overflow of His love created us for a relationship with Him, created the world in perfection, not broken the way we see it now, but sin doing our thing instead of God's thing choosing to listen to other voices instead of God, trusting our own wisdom instead of God's wisdom, has put us in a spot where we hunger for a satisfaction that we cannot find in ourselves. We want justice to be done. We want the innocent to be protected. We want equality and freedom and all of these things, and we rely on government to fix them. In case you didn't know, government is made up of people like you and me, sinners, people with their own agendas. They're human beings. Don't expect them to be Jesus. Just just a little side note. Stop expecting your public leaders, your civic leaders, to be perfect. They're not. You should expect integrity. But guess what? You're probably not going to get it a lot of the time. Because they're sinners. Just like so many of us would call ourselves honest people, and yet there is dishonesty that creeps into every part of our lives. We kind of... Fudge the truth a little bit. We exaggerate a little bit. And when I say a little bit, I mean a lot. When I say sometimes, I mean all the time. This is pretty regular for us. And yet we hold others to a different standard because we long for things to be right, to be better. We need things to be made right. We need God to intervene and to deal with the injustice, the wickedness that we see in our world, to bring light to this darkness, order to this chaos, and hope to this pervasive despair. We want it passionately, but we only want it partially. We think we want it, 
until we recognize what it means for God to bring His justice. Because we are part of the problem. It's not their sin from those people and that wicked group that isn't quite like me. If they were a little bit more like me, if they would think the way I think, well, then everybody would be just, right? No, we are part of the problem. In fact, you could say rightly, we are the problem. Turn, if you would, to Romans chapter 1. Verses 18 to 32. If you found Matthew, Romans is just a little bit to the, to the right. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Once you get to John, you get the, the history book of, of the church in Acts. And right after that is Romans. Romans chapter 1, starting with verse 18. Paul is laying out for us the human condition. And, and some of these verses you may recognize as things that people will use as, I've heard them called, you know, gotcha verses or, or thumpers, you know, things that you're going to use to point out somebody else's sin. But Paul's talking to all of us about all of our sin. Here's what he says. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God, nor gave thanks to Him. But their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. And clearly, as Paul is writing this, he's thinking of so much of the the outright idolatry of a pagan age. We often might look at that and say, well, that's for a different time. That's not really our culture. We don't have these same kinds of idols, don't we? Don't we spend an awful lot of time worshiping at the altar of creation rather than the Creator? We spend an awful lot of time focused on ourselves, focused on our bodies, someone else's bodies, our technology, things that exalt us, made in the image of mortal man. Well, idolatry hasn't changed. It's changed forms a little. It's changed shape. The face looks different. But we are so guilty of putting our hope, putting our stress, our, our emphasis, our worship into things created in our image rather than worshiping the Creator who is alone to be praised. Verse 24. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. That sounds a lot like today, doesn't it? We worship ourselves, so God gives us over to ourselves. 25, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the Creator who is forever praised. Amen. The problem with our world is that we've made it our world. This is God's world. But we've decided that we get to be in charge, so it's ours. In our rebellious sin, we have severed ourselves from the source of life. Where's God in the midst of all this suffering and sin? Who are you, O oh sinful man, to even ask such a question? Where is God? Same place He's always been. Weeping 
over Adam's sinful race. As a race, we've brought it on ourselves. You may not personally have a hand in the particular sin that you see in others, but all of us, all of us, have contributed to a world in rebellion. We tend to want the benefits of God, but not the reality of God Himself, as He is, on His terms. The problem with sin in every single one of us is that it seeks to make me God and to make the one true living God my servant rather than my master. Sin has left us darkened, disordered, and despairing. And we all want it set right until we realize that for it to be set right, God has to deal with my sin as much as everyone else's. Well, in the midst of this darkness, in the midst of this chaos and despair, notice our second point. God's promise offered hope to those who would believe it. God's promise offered hope to those who would believe it. Now, the hope of God's promise is, is ontologically real. It exists in itself. But it can only be taken hold of if it becomes something I put my hope in. If God is making a promise to His people and I remain in rebellion against God, therefore I am not among His people, I can't find hope in that promise. So we have to actually believe what He says. And that changes a lot of things for us. God's promise offered hope to those who would believe it. The moment sin entered the world, way back in Genesis 3, when when our, our first father and mother participated in the same kind of sin that would carry on through all of us, that we inherit from them, the desire to have more, know more, be more, to be on par with God, whether we would ever say it that way or not. The moment sin entered, death entered with it. All of creation has existed under that curse. In Genesis 3.15, after God had encountered Adam and Eve's sin and He had confronted them with it, He speaks this curse, the curse that is over all of creation because of sin, to the serpent, to the woman, to the man. And beginning with the serpent, he says, you'll be hated by the woman and her seed. You'll crawl on on your belly in the dust the rest of your days. And he gives a specific promise in there that is a condemnation of that great serpent, the devil, and is also the beginning, the proto-evangel, the the first of the gospel, when he says, the seed of the woman will crush the serpent's head. The serpent will bruise his heel, but he will crush your head. This is the promise that offered hope to those who would believe it. There is a hunger throughout the Old Testament for the day when the serpent crusher would come. And the enemies of God would be stomped. When sin would be dealt with. When wickedness would be judged. And God's people would be redeemed and delivered. In Genesis 12, God calls Abram out of a land of pagans. To a place he doesn't even know where he's going. He says, go where I send you. And he makes Abram a promise. Later he'll change his name to Abraham, as most of us would recognize him. He says, Abram, I'm, I'm going to make you into a great nation, into many nations. And all nations would be blessed through you. And he reiterates that covenant in, in chapter 15 of Genesis and chapter 17. And, and we see this theme of God's covenant, God's promise to Abram, Wrought by God, Abram didn't seek it, God chose him, pulled him out, sent him, and said, you're mine. And, and the people that come from you, they're mine. 
God's promise in that covenant offered hope. And Abram believed God. And it was credited to him as righteousness. Turn, if you would, to Exodus chapter 6. Way toward the front of your Bible, right after the book of Genesis, which is the beginning. You can find the book of Exodus. Now you may recognize Exodus from Cecil B. DeMille movies or the Prince of Egypt. You know, you're going to find these, these great films that tell us the story. So many of us see it in Hollywood, we don't get to actually read it in the text. But in, in Exodus 6, God is sending Moses to, uh, to deliver his people. You're going to see in, in verses 1 through 9... Uh, how God interacts with Moses. And notice the things that he says about his deliverance. Verse 1, Then the Lord said to Moses, Now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. Because of my mighty hand, he will let them go. You remember the people were in slavery, and the Lord had heard their cry. Because of my mighty hand, he will let them go. Because of my mighty hand, he will drive them out of his country. God also said to Moses, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, Yahweh, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, where they lived as aliens. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the Israelites whom the Egyptians are enslaving, and I have remembered my covenant. Therefore, say to the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God, who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians." And I will bring you to the land I swore with uplifted hand to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord. Moses reported this to the Israelites, but they did not listen to him because of their discouragement and cruel bondage. God's promise to deliver his people was an offer of hope. I'm going to do this. You're not strong enough. It is as bad as you think. It's worse than you think. But I'll bring you out. I am the Lord. And by mighty acts, by my outstretched arm, I will redeem my people. And they longed for that. They had been crying out for that. But they couldn't believe it because of their discouragement. This is the problem. You and I face discouragement all the time, don't we? When we pray and it seems like God doesn't hear or answer. When we are just so sure that the right thing will happen and then it doesn't. It can leave us in a deeper hole than we started. If our hope is in our ability to perceive it and understand it discouragement will keep us from believing. And if we don't believe God's promises, then there is no hope. That's where we find hope, right? That's that, that sure and certain fulfillment of His promise. That's what gives us hope in a hostile world. Hebrews 11, we'll, we'll look at it a little bit later. You don't have to look it up yet, but we'll get to it later, hopefully unless I run out of time. We often call this the Faith Hall of Fame. This is a, a recounting of Old Testament saints who believed God, who had faith, even though they couldn't see the circumstances changing. Here's what the writer of Hebrews says in verses 13 to 16. All these people, and he's named a bunch of them, and he's going to name more after this, all these people were still living by faith when they died. 
They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. I want to just stop for a second. That has historically been the mindset of Christ followers. We're aliens and strangers here. From the apostles down to us today, we can't trust God as God and get comfortable here because this is not our home. We were made for another place. So this world cannot offer us the satisfaction that we so often see the world around us chasing. And far too often, even those of us who claim Christ still chase the same things the world chases. Listen, that's not some big headline sins we got to watch out for. Probably, I'm just guessing, most of you here are not going to go on murder sprees or rob banks. Probably. I don't know, I'm just saying probably, because I know you people. But every day you and I face the temptation to find our satisfaction in all sorts of things that are not God Himself. That's the root of the rest of these things. And so as we find our satisfaction in the world, as we begin to think like the world, as we have the values of the world, we don't need to have big headline sins to be in rebellion against God. And as we do, we suppress the truth through that wickedness. And as we suppress the truth through that wickedness, we don't, we can't believe God's Word. We can't make it ours and let it change us because we're still too tied to the things we see and perceive with our senses. Continue. So all these people, they, they were still living by faith. They didn't receive the promise, but they admitted, they recognized that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. Verse 14 says, People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared a city for them. God's promise offered hope to those who would believe it. We needed that because sin has left us dark and disordered and despairing, and something has to break that up. Something has to fill the darkness with light. It's the promise of God. Notice this difficult thing in our next point. Salvation and judgment are inseparable realities. Salvation and judgment are inseparable realities. This is why, while we passionately long for justice, we only partially want justice. Because the deliverance of the righteous involves, it, it requires the judgment of the wicked. That's really our heart's cry as we long for justice. Not only our own blessing, yes, that, but that justice would be done to the wicked. The two go hand in hand. And very often in our, in our very smart, humanistic way of thinking, we're going to sit back and think, well, we, I, I don't want to see anybody you know, go to jail. I don't want to see anybody... You know, face these great penalties. I don't want to see bad things happen. Yes, you do. Stop lying to yourself. You can say that in a vacuum. You can say that in a classroom. You can say that in theory. But when it's your child that's being harmed, when wickedness is being perpetrated against the innocent that you love, listen, you're not looking for correction. Your soul cries out for justice. And the deliverance of the righteous requires the judgment of the wicked. Now, one of the reasons that we often see that go wrong is because when we, as flawed humans, carry out justice, we carry it out imperfectly because we are imperfect. And so the systems that we have in place in every government, everywhere, at all times, until Christ returns to reign directly in His own perfect government, every government until that time 
will have false, impure, corrupted justice. Always has, always will. That's always going to be the truth because it's comprised of or composed of people like you and me who are selfish and we get angry and our sins can taint the way we think. It darkens us. That's the problem we run into. You see, for God to deal with the wickedness in this world, for God to eliminate that which is sinful, that which is opposed to Him, all the evil, He's got to deal with me. Because that evil starts in the heart of every person with our sin. Not your sin and their sin and somebody else's sin. The person in the mirror. If God were to deal with all wickedness, who could stand? And the time will come when God will deliver. He will fulfill His promise and He will deliver His people. And that will mean just had a conversation about vocabulary and this is the only word I know of that fits that will mean damnation for all who are not his people that's a problem love and justice are tough to deal with salvation and judgment are inseparable realities notice this though waiting for God's deliverance is crushing, but crucial. Waiting for God's deliverance is crushing, but crucial. Throughout the Old Testament in particular, when we see the Psalms, we see the prophets, and and the, the prayer of the saints, and the crying out of those who belong to God for justice, it inevitably, we see over and over again in these Psalms, and we see the prophets crying out for it, it's the call for God to crush the wicked. And we trust that God's going to do that. But waiting for God's promise is hard. The prophets spanned generations calling for the repentance of God's people. It was God's own people that were the problem a lot of the time. In in the book of Habakkuk, that's what he's crying out against. Why, Lord, why aren't you dealing with the injustice among our priests, among our leaders? Our kings are corrupt. God, what are you going to do about this? It's God's own people. Most of what we see throughout the writings of the prophets in the Old Testament is not judgment against the enemies of God. That's a foregone conclusion. And he does point it out. But the emphasis is God judging His own people. Judgment begins with the house of God. But waiting for the deliverance can be overwhelming. The prophets call for the repentance of God's people, the deliverance of God's people, and the judgment of God's enemies, crying out, How long, O Lord? How long will you be silent? How long will you treat me this way by allowing me to be mistreated by the wicked? The Psalms, interestingly, the, the, the Psalms as a book were compiled post-exile. When they returned from exile in Babylon, the book was compiled and arranged to see God's deliverance of His people. And so many of these psalms are grouped together in longing and expectation for when God would redeem His people. Turn We'll, we'll look at Psalm 130 in a moment. But turn to Habakkuk, if you, if you can find it. <laughs> I won't take too long, but uh, if you find, go to the middle of your Bible, you find Psalms and you know, might end up in Isaiah. Those major prophets, they've got big books. They're a little easier to find. And then as you slide to the right from there, oops, your pages get skinnier as you go. And the smart pastor marks the page beforehand so you're not up here standing and looking. 
the whole time. Come on now. I said if you can find it, right? I think I brought my defective Bible that doesn't have it in there. Just kidding. Here it is. As I mentioned, Habakkuk is crying out against the injustice within Israel. Habakkuk chapter 1, the oracle that Habakkuk the prophet received. And notice what, what we have here. Your Bible may have the heading of Habakkuk's complaint, rightly so. How long, O Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen? Or cry out to you, violence, but you do not save? Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. There is strife and conflict abounds. Therefore the law is paralyzed. Injustice never prevails. The wicked hem in the righteous so that justice is perverted. Well, that's an uplifting start, isn't it? Long lay the world in sin and error pining. Habakkuk is crying out for God to appear, show up, come on the scene and fix this. We're your people. We can't be this way. God, your law is perverted and paralyzed because you don't judge the wicked. Habakkuk is a worthwhile study. But notice... <laughs> Notice that God says to him, Habakkuk, listen, if I told you what I was going to do, you wouldn't believe me. So then God tells him, and he doesn't believe him. And God says, I'm going to use the wicked nation to come and judge my people. And Habakkuk's like, what? They're worse than we are. You can't do that. God says, I'm God. He's like, okay, I'm going to shut up now. But God, as he tells him about this, notice in chapter 2, Uh, verse 3 is what we're looking at. Start with verse 2. Then the Lord replied, Write down the revelation and make it plain on tablets so that a herald may run with it. For the revelation, the vision, awaits an appointed time. It speaks of the end and will not prove false. Though it linger, though it tarry, wait for it. It will certainly come and will not delay. Waiting for God's deliverance is crushing, but crucial. Wait, even if it takes a long, long, long time. Expect God's deliverance. Turn to Psalm 130. Back to the left, you'll find the middle of your Bible is usually the easiest place to find the Psalms. Psalm 130 is a song of expectation and longing but it really shows the antidote, like so many of the Psalms do, the antidote for this longing. As Habakkuk cries out, How long, O Lord? The psalmist here in this song of ascents says this, starting with verse 1, Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. If you, O Lord, kept a, kept a record of sins, O Lord, who could stand? I couldn't stand. You couldn't stand. The psalmist couldn't stand. It's God's forbearance, His patience with us that gives us the grace to take another breath. Verse 4, but with you, there is forgiveness. Therefore, you are feared. It's an interesting choice of words. There is forgiveness, therefore you are feared. God holds judgment in His hands, righteousness in His hands. And salvation and judgment are inseparable concepts. While we wait, we need to recognize His character. Verse 5, I wait for the Lord, my soul waits. And in His word I put my hope. My soul waits for the Lord. More than watchmen wait for the morning. More than watchmen wait for the morning. Oh, Israel, put your hope in the Lord. For with the Lord 
is unfailing love. And with him is full redemption. He himself will redeem Israel from all their sins. Turn to the New Testament, to the book of Romans. We saw it earlier. When you get to Romans, find chapter 8. When you get to 8, find verse 18. Paul, throughout the book of Romans, has been laying out the human condition and God's salvation available to us. And he starts chapter 8 because of everything that we've seen in God's provision for us, by faith, he says, therefore there's no longer any condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And yet we still suffer, yet we still go through difficulties. The world is hard and dark and disordered and despairing. But notice what Paul writes. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Notice this, we talked about the longing, the darkness. The creation waits, the creation itself, not just us, but creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. Notice the biblical hope is not a crossing your fingers hoping that you know maybe it's going to work out. It's a sure and certain resting in what we know to be true. That's biblical hope. Verse 22, we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what he already has? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. Waiting for God's deliverance is crushing, but crucial. It's what we're called to. It's what we must do. Mark this down. Jesus is the ultimate demonstration of God's love. Jesus is the ultimate demonstration of God's love. The wonders of God's love are fully displayed in Jesus through the wonder of redemption. Romans 5.8 tells us that God demonstrated His own love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It wasn't that we were holy. It wasn't that we were seeking. We were dead in our sin. Dead people don't seek. Dead people don't reach. Dead people don't hope. And God reached into that. And through His great mercy, made us alive with Christ by His Holy Spirit while we were yet sinners. Jesus is the ultimate demonstration of God's love. The hopes and fears of all the years are met in Thee. Salvation and judgment, love and justice, fully found in Christ. He makes the nations prove the glories of His righteousness. That's both the blessing of living within His righteousness and also the consequences of living without it. He makes the nations prove the glories of His righteousness and the wonders of His love. His unspeakable mercy and grace shown to us in Christ. Jesus is the ultimate demonstration of God's love. When we sing these Christmas hymns and songs, and you know, there's a lot of fun 
holiday songs out there, but they're not really Christmas. Even the ones that use the word Christmas, they're not celebrating Christ, but the hymns of the church, including so many modern things. When we contemplate the wonders of His love, and we begin to look at this not just as a nostalgic nativity scene like you know a lot of people have in their homes. That, that's, that's great. I love it. It's cool. But that's not what we're talking about. It's not about the manger. That's a step on the journey. It's about the cross. That's what Jesus came for. He came as the ultimate demonstration of God's love, and that brings us to our final point. The only meaningful hope in this world is found in Christ. Kind of a sweeping statement. You might be thinking, well, that's kind of broad. I'm going to stand on that. There is no other hope. There is no other name by which we must be saved than the name of Jesus Christ. In the end, He's the one who will set all things right. It will not be set right in this life. Now that is a a hopeful thing for those of us who see the injustice and want to see it changed. It is a fearful thing for those of us who are still mired in sin because the holy God will not tolerate it and nobody gets away with anything. We will all die, Hebrews 9 tells us, and we will all stand before the judge. Everyone. No passes. It doesn't matter if you believe or not. Well, I don't believe that. Okay, fine. I don't believe in this ticket that you gave me. Still got to pay the fine. That's how it works, right? We will stand before God. And it doesn't matter if you're a Christian or a Hindu or a Buddhist or a so-called atheist. I don't believe that they exist. But anyway, three of you got that. Anyway, as as we stand before God, He's not going to ask about your label and then say, oh, well, yeah, you're you're a Buddhist, so you're okay because you didn't really believe it anyway. No, we all stand before the same God with the same standard for every one of us. And none of us can meet that standard. None of us. So when you point your finger at that other person who's so wicked, you better remember that there are three more pointing back at you. Because you will stand before God and so will I. If you kept a record of of sins, O Lord, who could stand? But the meaningful hope that we have in Christ is that with God... There's forgiveness, unfailing love. And He demonstrated that love for us in sending Christ while we were still sinners. He didn't wait for us to clean ourselves up. He'd be waiting for eternity because you and I can't get ourselves that clean. The only meaningful hope in this world is found in Christ. People will let you down, amen? And you'll let them down. I don't usually get as many amens with that kind of a statement. Government will let you down. That person that you were so confident in as a candidate, that you you cast your vote for him, you campaign for him, you put a sign out, they will let you down. The person you're deeply in love with and you marry will let you down and you will let them down. Your children will let you down. Your parents will let you down. But Jesus Christ will never ever let you down is the only meaningful hope in this world the self-revealing creator god became one of us that he might rescue all of us that's the gospel romans 3 i'm gonna have you turn there i got a little time (laughs) romans 3 if you're still there it's kind of easy Romans 3 shows us this connection between God's love and God's justice. After spending time quoting the the Old Testament prophet to, to point out that nobody actually is seeking God, nobody is actually righteous in our own strength. He goes on in verse 21, we'll read through 26. But notice what he says. But now, 
This is our this is our hope. But now a righteousness from God apart from law has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. In other words, the Old Testament's been saying this straight along. The law called you to faith. The prophets called you to faith. It was always about faith. It was about receiving and believing what God was doing, not about what you could do. Now, this has been made known to us and been made available to which the Old Testament testifies. This righteousness, verse 22, this righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There's no difference between Jew and Gentile he's talking about. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are, notice this, justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Him as a sacrifice of atonement. It was the payment to set us right with God. He became our substitute. He paid the penalty for our sins to atone for our sins. It was a propitiation, a, an appeasement of God's righteous wrath. We're justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Verse 25, God presented Him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in His blood. The sacrifice is made. We take hold of it by believing. He paid for the gift. Our job is to unwrap it through faith. Through faith in His blood, He did this fullness of justice and love. He did this to demonstrate His justice because in His forbearance He had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate His justice at the present time so as to be just. A just God cannot let sin go unpunished, right? When the bad guys go free, that's not justice. So as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. That's the expression of His unspeakable, wonderful love. Bethlehem was the beginning of the fulfillment of God's hope-giving promise. It was God bringing to fruition in the fullness of time exactly what He had sovereignly determined from before the creation of the world to redeem a people set apart for Himself. This coming of Messiah, the Redeemer, was what the ancients built their lives upon. I mentioned Hebrews 11. For the sake of time, I won't have you turn there. It's written for you in your program. Look it up. Read it. It starts out in the very first verse with faith. Faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. In other words, we know it even when the circumstances around us, even when our feelings are screaming at us, no, it can't be true. But we hold on to what we already know to be true in the face of mental and spiritual opposition. In verse 6, it points out that we can't come to God without faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. For the one that comes to God must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who diligently seek Him. I need the faith that God gives by His Holy Spirit in order to begin to seek Him. And he goes through all of these Old Testament writers, uh, Old Testament uh, believers, who were believing forward to the coming Messiah. They were believing forward to God's redemption, what is often called the consolation of Israel. And they built their lives on that. They could have gone back to their old lives, but they had their hearts set, their eyes set, their minds focused on a heavenly country. It's the same, it's the same mentality. They built their lives upon trusting the promise of God that brought hope into a hopeless place, that brought light into our darkness. 
the certainty that the Lord would keep His promise to redeem and set all things right even when they couldn't see it. It's the same hope upon which we must build our lives today. If you haven't built your life upon this rock before now, don't delay. Don't harden your heart. Don't say tomorrow, I'll... I'll I'll give my life tomorrow. Who offered you tomorrow? Who promised you tomorrow? Don't wait. If the Lord is talking to you now and you know it, you sense it, and you recognize, man, I, have, I, I believed in Jesus, I believe that God exists, I've been to church, I did all these things, but I didn't build my life on that. I didn't set my hope on this rock. Then you need, in this moment, right now, to turn around, to repent, to say, Lord, I'm, I'm done doing my thing. I'm done going my way. I am in awe of the love that you have for me. And I just want you. I don't care if you've been in this church all 20 years that we've existed. If you haven't built your life on that reality before now, do it now. Don't delay. Let this Christmas take on a whole new meaning for you by letting the wonders of His love wash over you, stripping away all of the human-centered things that, that fill your life, and instead let Him fill you with the thankful praise that is fitting as you behold the Savior this long-expected Jesus who was born to set His people free, to release us from our sins and fears by taking them upon Himself and dying in our place. The fullness of God's love and justice are displayed in Christ, born to save us from our sins. That's what Jesus means. It's a Greek form of of uh, the Old Testament name Joshua or variants from that. But it means God saves. Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. We, we see that literally so often, God being present with us in the flesh. And yes, that's 100% what it means. But it also, along with that, has the metaphorical context that not only is God present with us, but He is on our side. Emmanuel, God with us, is the demonstration of His wonderful love that He is for us. And by becoming one of us, He came to save His people from their sins. The reason for the season is that Christ came into the world to save sinners, to redeem us as our atoning sacrifice, a substitutionary payment for our sin against Him. That's what makes this whole thing so wondrous. He didn't have to do any of it, but He did. He did. He didn't have to create us, but He did. He didn't have to let us know Him and reveal Himself to us, but He did. He certainly didn't have to become one of us, but He did. He humbled Himself. And He took on our limitations and faced every temptation, even as we do yet without ever having sin. Therefore, because He had no sin of His own, He was able to redeem us, to become sin on our behalf in that substitutionary atonement, that we might be credited with His righteousness and become the very righteousness of God. What wonder it is. The child sleeping on Mary's lap was and is the King of all kings, who created all things out of the overflow of His love. The King of all kings who revealed Himself that we might know and love Him, who took on flesh as one of us, that He might redeem us by suffering and dying in our place. In His death and resurrection, He reconciled those who believe to God. And He will one day return to reign 
to rule, to eliminate all sin, to set it right. In his first advent, his first coming, he saved his people from the penalty and power of sin. And when he returns, he will save us even from the very presence of sin. Praise forever to the King of Kings. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we conclude our service today, fill us with the wonder of your love. Teach our hearts, Lord. Train our, our thinking, our, our feeling, our desiring to recognize that Jesus Christ came to save sinners. That he was the perfect display of the fullness of your love and your justice. And that, that central focus, Lord, make that the focus that we have in this season. As we leave this place, we're going to be going to family celebrations and all the busyness that goes along with getting ready for that, Lord. Deliver us from that focus. We know we still have to get the things done, but Lord, in the midst of it, even peeling potatoes, help us to glory in You. Some of us will be watching football or, or wrapping presents or doing all sorts of different things. Lord, remind us of just how small, how empty these things are in themselves and cause us to praise You for giving us so much more. And in the greatness of your love, in the greatness of all you've given us, Father, you've given us the ability, the capacity, and the right to enjoy all these lesser things for your glory. And so we thank you and we praise you. Lord, for all who are hearing my voice today and have not surrendered their hearts to you, they've not bowed their knee to you as their master, do whatever it takes in this moment and beyond to bring them to the foot of the cross that they might receive Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord and build their life on your hope-giving promise. Father, we recognize you as the King of all kings. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.